Say you want a revolution. Well, you know, that ain't going to happen. Not politically, not spiritually. All you'll ever get is a pendulum. Back and forth you'll swing. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention. That doesn't mean don't partake in the political system. If you feel like doing that, definitely do that. Because this is the world we've got. So even if we're prone to hitting ourselves in the face, it's better to slap than to use a closed fist. So let's get the people in there with the open hands, not the people with the closed fists, right? Plus, if you don't vote, if you don't partake, if you're one of those people who's like, oh, it's all rigged anyway, um, well, someone in the political system has a plan for you too. They love that you don't vote. They're going to use that against you with the policies that they create in the absence of your voice. And if you say, well, it's all controlled and my voice doesn't matter anyway, still, why not be a scientist about it and put that to the test? Go ahead and vote and see what happens. And this is speaking as someone who did not vote for uh, Bill Clinton in the second election. My first vote, my very first vote was for Bill Clinton. I was so excited. Here's this guy who played saxophone on Arsenio Hall, Right? Like, he must be cool. He must be just like you and me. My dad kept telling me, no, no, he's actually a Republican in Democratic clothing. He actually flew back to his own home state to watch executions of mentally ill people on death row uh, to show that he's tough on crime. But I didn't listen. I thought, no, well, it's better than the alternative. And um, better than the alternative, as we all know, to a point, doesn't mean much. In this election, it'll mean everything. But up until this this presidential election coming up, um, it just meant picking the lesser of evils. So in the second Clinton election, I did not vote for him because um, he stole the Republican platform. He did illegal bombings in Iraq. I didn't like what he's doing. I, I, I understood what my dad was saying finally. Then in the 2000 election, I voted for Ralph Nader. And it was okay to vote for him because he wasn't going to be a factor in the swing states. So it was a good protest vote in which you could feel good about not voting in the lesser of evils and not accidentally swinging the vote to the greater evil. Of course, little did I know at the time that the game was rigged and the Supreme Court would hand the greater evil the election. So there's that. Because, of course, things are rigged in the Republicans' favor. And, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying at the level where the Democrats and the Republicans get into a room together and their overlord tells them uh, how they're going to play their roles, like Vince McMahon to the good guys and bad guys of pro wrestling. I'm just saying I don't think that happens, <laughs> but uh, I could be wrong, but uh, I don't think that happens. I think Democrats have done this in the past, but it's more the Republicans now who rig the elections to favor their party to the best of their ability based on projected uh, voter turnout. So, I mean, the Supreme Court could not have handed George Bush the election if there wasn't such a low uh, Democratic turnout uh, in the country, right? If it had been a landslide victory for Al Gore, the Florida recount debacle wouldn't have been a thing. So I'm just giving you this uh, by way of my own background to say, yeah, no matter what you think about the system and how rigged it is and, and all of that, and, and it is, it certainly is gerrymandered in one way, whether you believe in uh, 
some sort of deep state that secretly puppet masters everything in Illuminati or something like that. I don't care to get into any of that except to say that because you can't know if it's true, why not just vote anyway? What does it take? How much of your, how much of your life does it take for you to actually vote for someone who may or may not <laughs> be presenting your viewpoint um, to a degree that they will then act out. I mean, they may be presenting it in lie, but maybe they will enact some of it. Who knows, right? We certainly see that it can't get any worse than what it's been under Donald Trump, who is the low-hanging fruit. So I won't go after him in this episode um, to use as an example of anything. Let's, um, let's stick with the liberals. Because at the moment, they're the ones who believe they're on the cusp of revolution. And what do you think the aftermath of that revolution looks like? I mean, is it fixing the system? Is it a completely new system? And does it matter? Because, again, it's a pendulum. If the mind that creates these systems is the same mind, whether we like the system or not, the next system that we don't is right around the corner because it's of this mind. And... We don't just see this in politics. We see that there's the dark side of the hippies, right? Uh, Flower power turned to Charles Manson. You could say that was inevitable. Hippies came to Hawaii with their long hair and their their Jesus-y, peacenik pacifism and introduced heroin to the islands. Heroin. I have a friend who was hugely politically active in Martin Luther King's day, in fact, had met Martin Luther King, but she admitted that at the time she thought Martin Luther King was a wimp. I mean, she doesn't say this now, like she's proud of it. She's, she's not proud of it, but she said at the time she thought he was a wimp and he needed to be more militant. Enough with this peaceful protesting stuff. But of course, she's white. So she can afford to say that. Could you imagine if uh, black Martin Luther King hadn't been peaceful? If he had been violent much earlier, don't you think he would have been killed much earlier? I mean, you can say that because you can afford to. You can change your mind because you can afford to. But also, here you are marching for peace, but you've got this bloodlust. You've got this, let's go to war with these people for the quote-unquote greater good. Well, is there a greater good if it's a pendulum? And it's a pendulum in the spiritual side of things. The spiritual search turns into cultural appropriation, doesn't it? When we go to other cultures and we try to pick and choose like it's a boutique, what do we want to use? What do we want from that culture? Let's ignore the rest, and let's leave them. Let's not really be interested in them. And in fact, let's leave what we've learned when we decide we've outgrown that. There's no love there. There's no spirit. It was racist to begin with. I mean, think about uh, all the people who went to um, First Peoples, First Nations Peoples, quote-unquote Indians, because they wanted to be taught something authentic and spiritual and natural. Why would Indians have anything to teach you when the way of life isn't a schoolhouse teaching? 
I mean, to really learn, you would actually have to be of that nation. You would have to live it day to day, breathe it. It would have to be in your DNA. I mean, that deep, right? And yet, you know, ye old hippie becomes author expert on that magic, that medicine, that culture, what they've learned of it. They become college professors. They write these books. They become famous. They say they're being culturally sensitive. But uh, let's question that. And now, of course, every white person who has picked up a book about any culture from the Americas and or done some form of hallucinogen is a shaman. Which is funny, because isn't shaman actually a Russian word? Or describing a Russian form of mysticism? But somehow it becomes South American. Okay, fine. And then suddenly it becomes, from there, anyone (laughs) who does anything that they consider to be magical. Heck, even the hairbands of the 80s gave way to the authenticity that was Nirvana, which then, when Kurt Cobain died, uh, released itself into the cold abyss of corporate rock. I mean, you know, <laughs> probably not the most important one of all, important example of all, but you get the point. On all levels, we have this, this, this pendulum. Well, I mean, what is the pendulum really? The pendulum is selfishness and self-interest, greed, hoarding, creating the pat, spoon-fed garbage that either corporations want you to want or that you actually do want, but they just give you all the sugar and none of the artistry, and it becomes this monotone, or it becomes... This, this buildup of the thing that you resent, and then you've got to fight against it. Or it becomes the poverty, poverty maker in terms of politics. It becomes um, the selfishness, the greed, the, all of that, that, that creates this, uh, this gap where we talk about the 1% versus the 99%. I think we get all of this, but what we don't get is that, okay, so then once the 99% rise and do away with the, the terrible system that next system is going to inevitably somewhere along the way be corrupted. And instead of really looking at that, we gloss over that. And that glossing over it is a selfishness because it's only thinking in the short term. It's not thinking about future generations. It's not thinking, you know, as long as I feel fine right now, That's all that matters. And if you feel fine right now, and you believe that you're working toward the betterment of other people, well, that's even more enticing if if you don't consider yourself to be completely selfish. But if it's of this mind, then it inevitably is just another form of selfishness. It's selfishness light. So... In terms of politics, it's what we just talked about. In terms of spirituality, it's claiming to be a master of some sort. Oh, I'm a Reiki master. I'm a healer. You know, claiming these things that presumably would be to benefit other people. But the payoff for you isn't that you're benefiting other people. The payoff for you is that you get to claim to be that. 
You get to be held in some sort of regard. Or you get to play in this delusion with like-minded people who are only going to give you positive affirmations. What about this is revolutionary? What about this is about higher consciousness, as people love to say? Real revolution isn't the product of rebellion. It isn't the product of anger and angst. Real revolution, inward revolution, is that which happens the moment one stops doing. Doing all of these things to cause revolution. To be revolutionary. It's a momentary, uh, instantaneous, transformational moment. A total inward revolution when one is silence. Not when one is silent, waiting for something to happen or plotting out the next thing. But being silence. That's revolutionary. The mind that comes upon one is not, a, is not the mind of revolutions, but the revolutionary mind. It's not the mind of the pendulum. It's the mind which transcends and includes thought. It's not higher thought. Higher mind, which is still of thought. Anything that is in a hierarchy is still within thought. And thought is the problem. Not how we think, not what we think. Thought, period. But if we are living in a world, as we are, that is unwilling to see this, unwilling to give up thought, give up the seeker-seeking, give up its struggles, then certainly the lesser of evils is the better thing, the more comfortable way to be, right? The better choice. If you're going to live in a world of false choices, uh, because truly there is only one free will choice that you will ever make. That one free will choice is always away from being, into more doing, into thought. And perhaps this is all getting ahead of myself here on this Our Undoing Radio show, uh, because this is stuff that we flesh out constantly at OurUndoing.com. So sometimes maybe I've got to remember, it may be difficult for me to remember, that um, that I haven't said all of the stuff that's been said there uh, in this podcast. And so I'll try not to let it get away from me too much here. Um, but probably we'll be dealing with this in greater depth in the next season, in the third season, these deeper questions about human nature and what is it, what isn't it, and how we're defining it wrongly. Um, but you need not even go that far. If you see all of this stuff clearly, the revolution may just take place within. The consciousness that I'm talking about may become you. It may not. Just leave it an open question. If it's real, if it's there, then it will be there. For real. <laughs> but in the meantime, what's, what's in front of us? What is our reality as we're living it? It's this pendulum between the horribly selfish and the lesser selfishness. A selfishness that... Uh, is in your face and is gross and um, is obvious and a selfishness that uh, includes empathy and 
may bury itself unconsciously, but there it still is, dancing you on its strings in subtle ways. And even in ways that in modern psychology we'd say are healthy, healthy selfishness. Uh, <laughs> let's question that. Yeah, in the in the realm of what we're talking about in, on this pendulum, there is, I guess, we're, what we're saying is we, there is healthy selfishness and there is unhealthy selfishness in the same way that it is true that on your psychologically greatest day, most uh, self-aware day, you are still slightly neurotic, right? This is by psychology we say that um, the best you can be is less neurotic than a neurotic person, but neurotic nonetheless. Is that the best we can do? Is that human nature? Or is that simply what we're doing? And what we, you know, this this mind that we've uh, been stuck with and, uh, and building up as the only reality or the pinnacle of what reality is, since in that is included the hierarchical, we're the greatest species on earth, right? Um, but is it, are we, and by we, I'm here really, I'm talking about brain people, westernized mind, not heart cultures, nature cultures, which isn't to say that they don't have their own issues, their own problems, of course, but these problems may not apply because for instance, they see animal nations, what we would call animism, where, uh, in our dopey Western psychology, we tend to think that um, animism is like this cartoonish um, humanization of animals and inanimate objects, whereas they see life everywhere in everything. Um, but the more that our physics bears out that everything is living energy, turns out that uh, maybe that view of these nature cultures was one through our own immature lens. We didn't understand what they were talking about. We thought they were talking about cartoon characters when they were talking about the aliveness, the living spark in all things, or that all things are comprised of. So yes, vote in your Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Look forward to the day that she becomes president, but just know that somewhere in the world will be the oppositional force around which uh, great numbers of people will coalesce. And that movement will eventually come to the fore. Just when you think you're safe, <laughs> just when you think the revolution has taken hold and you've won, the play goes on and on. Back and forth, back and forth. And of course, in that back and forth, once again, having even the falsest of freedoms is greater than the truest of slaveries, right? So it is important to try to maintain the best society we can in that. But not only will it not sustain itself forever, uh, as nothing does, it won't for the for two reasons. One, be, because of that, because it can't. 
in that way and that nothing lasts forever, but also uh, because we've allowed ourselves to define what human nature is in this way where we accept that we're just going to screw up in the same way over and over and over again. History repeats itself. Well, no, we're, that, that is a description of, of what's happening, but it's not saying why. We're just saying, oh, well, that's human nature. But it's not human nature. It's stagnation. It's what happens when we stop blooming. <laughs> uh, not that we're stop growing in a hierarchical way into deeper spirituality or anything like that, but I'm sure our undoing.com members are sick of the caterpillar butterfly analogy, but it is as if we are the caterpillar in the cocoon and we don't want to chew our way out. Uh, and so we say, well, all of the pressures and the claustrophobia and the gross smells <laughs> that come from being stuck in your room, um, that's just human nature. Well, no, it's not human nature. It, it's it's hum, it, it's a part of human nature when you don't open the door to your room and leave. Uh, when you don't chew your way out of the cocoon and be the butterfly, then yes, that is your nature. But you're leaving that part out, the part where, no, 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 there is a transformative moment that must take place, must, for the species to continue, or else, like the butterfly who never leaves the cocoon, will go extinct. We'll go crazy, like the person trapped in the room in solitary confinement. So political revolutions, believe it or not, these are easy. These are the easy things, folks. We know this. We know how to hurt people, how to create war. Uh, we know how to change the hearts and minds and be charismatic or be domineering, dictatorial. We know how to do all that. We know how to gently ease people through persuasion and to acclimatize them to rate hikes through the drip, drip, drip of rising prices until they realize, oh, wait, I can't afford anything anymore. We know all of this. We know the positive version of that. We know how to do all of that. Right? We know how to roll back the bad stuff, the bad policies. And in our private lives, we know how to see through the orthodox mainstream view. We know how to acquire the great knowledge of healing energies and astral travel and, you know, all of these things. All of these parlor tricks. We don't know how to live in a culture that doesn't treat them as parlor tricks, but understands them and maps them out. That we don't get. The downside of that is, once it's mapped out, when you start abiding by that map... Sure, you're more, you're more awake, more alive, maybe more interconnecting with nature, but you're not oneness identifying. You're interconnecting, which is healthy, but it's not the revolution we're looking for. You know, a lot of Star Wars fans hated The Last Jedi, the, the last uh, Star Wars movie that came out, The Last Jedi. And the reason they hated it was because it was a sort of a teardown of the mythology that we uh, believed in as kids and that we have been sticking around for for decades and psyched to reintroduce to our children, right? 
Um, but it was a teardown of all that. It said this back and forth between good and evil, the force, the, the dark side and the light side of the force is a never-ending trick. You can, you can pick a side. You can be a good guy, a bad guy, a light person, a dark person. Um, but if you get caught up in it, you end up playing out the same archetypal stories over and over again. That's what the whole Star Wars universe is, right? And so in this movie, <laughs> the, the director said, enough. Luke Skywalker questioned all of that. We didn't want him questioning all of that, right? We wanted him engaging in it and being the hero so we can get behind him and go, yes, the light side wins. Luke wins. Oh, all my childhood fantasies coming true again. We wanted to recycle our childhood fantasies. (laughs) Our vicariously living through this character yet again. And the director put a halt to all of that. And even Mark Hamill himself, who plays Luke Skywalker, uh, didn't particularly like the turn his character took. But actually, this was the most spiritual of all the films. Which is precisely why people didn't like it. Because we love furthering the narrative that we've got. The The narrative we've got is how we identify whichever character in that narrative we we identify with. We don't want someone crashing through, (laughs) breaking the fourth wall and saying, whoa, 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 wake up. We want the wake-up call to be within the narrative. We want to take us with us when we go. We don't want to die to the narrative. We want to be alive when that narrative changes. We want that revolution to take place within our own minds or within our own political system to our own higher self that we imagine exists or soul that we imagine exists. But what happens when we stop imagining, stop inventing, stop playing out the patterns of another person's imagination or a culture's imagination, a collective's? No, the revolution will not be televised, nor will it involve a group dynamic. If there's a revolution, it's going to be you within yourself understanding this. And that understanding running so deeply that the revolutionary, her or himself, dissolves. Death of self while the body is alive? There's the revolution. Don't imagine it. Don't do anything about it. Don't try to be it. Don't ask another culture for instructions. Don't compare what's being said here with what you've heard before. The revolution happens in the moment. And that moment is truth. That truth cannot be exposed in and as you, so long as you are in the way, mulling this over, comparing, thinking, plotting your next move, smoke-screening the moment with your own desire to remain as you are, but just a little more comfortable on the pendulum. Real revolution doesn't come from political movements or spiritual movements. Real revolution comes in the cessation of all movement. 